Welcome to the Back of the Stand, I'm Mark Saggers. Each week I'll be joined by some of the biggest names in sports as we delve deep into the controversial discussions that others aren't brave enough to have. In this episode, we'll look back at some of the unbelievable football of the weekend. Take Arsenal on your marks, get set, peace, and go Arsenal. Six of the very best at West Ham. What next for David Moyes? And of course, the air has been turned blue over the couple weeks. And of course, the air has been turned blue by talking about referees and VAR. But blue cards for sin bins? Mark Halsey and Keith Hackett on the very latest. It's an exciting test series in India. Third test to come starting on Thursday. Neil Burns and Angus Fraser with all the very latest from Raj Kot. And can England continue to prove somehow that Baz Ball half works at the very least in India? When it comes to the Six Nations, it's all about England. How on earth did they get out of that problem this weekend? George Shooter, Nick Easter on many of the other parts of what is a fabulous series and tournament as always. And of course, when we look at the big problems, Sheffield Wednesday demonstrating after devastation with their owner and why they need to get it sorted. Everton, there'll be a chill win, no doubt about that, across the Mersey come the middle of February when Everton possibly could be deducted even more points. And what about Nottingham Forest? Mid-April, they will know. But will it be a spring surprise that has them smiling or not? Kieran Maguire, one of the great football finance experts, Andrew Mills, the former Brentford chief executive, and representatives from the clubs too, as we really get under what is happening at the top when it comes to the owners of these clubs. Well, let's start tonight with the latest game. Uh, finished, what, 45 minutes or so ago. And it was, uh, in the end, Manchester United, who got the better of Aston Villa at Villa Park by two goals to one. They took the lead uh, in that game. Hoyland uh, with uh, what was uh, an easy tap-in in the end for the first goal. Uh, an equaliser from Luis, but it was McTominay off the bench, as I've mentioned once more, really beginning to show uh, the real player that I know has been in there for some time and I think the one thing obviously that the manager has managed to do is calm him down a little bit he's like a thoroughbred racehorse that always just wanted to chew on the bit and wear himself out before he'd really done anything not anymore and he's really showing uh, how good and potent he can be as a powerful goal scorer uh, inside the box of the opposition. Howard Hodgson is the former director of uh, Aston Villa Football Club Supporters Trust, is with us. Hi, Howard. Good evening, Mark. And Jay Motti, Stretford Paddock YouTube, is with us as well. Hi, Jay. I'm going to give you the floor to start with here because these are the sort of games that Manchester United have been failing to pick up all three points when they've let the opposition back into it. Yeah, I mean, like you say, we've we've struggled with that all season. And if you look at sort of going back to last season under Eitzen Hag and this season as well, we've struggled away from home against the top sides. I think there's that, that uh, statistic that we've not won against the team that's been in the top eight away from home for about 18 months, which is just uh, sort of the mind boggles when you think of that, considering we finished third last season as well, that that's, that is still going on. So it feels like it was a bit of a moment just to get that one put to bed. And like you say, because we've been in this position before where we've scored, we've let teams back in and then we failed to to get a winner or we've even gone on to lose the game. I did fear the worst when Villa got their equaliser, especially with the way they were sort of targeting Victor Lindelof. Leon Bailey in particular was getting on the ball and was causing him a bit of a torrid time. And to be fair, Victor Lindelof, he'd come in for Luke Shaw, who'd gone off at half time. He's not a left-back Lindelof. I think he was struggling, but it's great to see United rallying around. Scott McTominay, as you mentioned earlier, he does keep coming up with these with his winners, these goals. He's, I think he's 
probably best used off the bench and as, a, as an attacking option. And he's shown that time and again this season. We saw it early on, obviously, mm. against Brentford, where we got two in, I think, was it two minutes? Yeah. And we've seen it throughout other games as well. So, yeah, a big win for Manchester United. A little bit of momentum going now. I know we've, we've had that before under Hitsanag, especially this season. But it felt like one of those games we had to win today to stay in that top mm. four race. We know Villa are above us. We know, obviously, Spurs are quite a few points ahead of us as well. If we lost today... I don't see a way for us getting into that top four. It's still going to be difficult. We're still playing catch-up, but I think today gave us a fighting chance. Yeah, some uh, great points you've made there. Had that these are the games that um, Unai Emery knows are ones that got away, particularly when you dragged yourself back into that game today. Yeah, it's true, Mark. Um, I thought, actually, when we got to 1-1, as Jace alluded to, I was hope quite hopeful we'd go on and win the game. Um Although it is Man United and Villa's record against Man United is hideous, <laughs> has been for like about 30 years. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, it was it appeared the worst when they got the early goal because mm -hmm. things have started to unravel a little bit recently. Um, you know, having gone a long time unbeaten at home, nearly a calendar year, um, we've lost now our last three home games, um, albeit against good teams, Newcastle, um, Chelsea and United today. Um, but yeah, it's a bit of a signal for Villa to let in that late winner. I would have been very happy with a draw yeah, um, because yeah, it, would have kept, it would have kept them eight points behind us. Now it's five. And yeah, they, you know, they've got some momentum and we're going through a bad spell. I mean, everybody, but, has, you know, everybody fake... has a bad spell at some yes, stage in the cool. season. It, what what? has got to happen now is that um, uh, Unai's got to get the belief back in the side here again. You've had your injuries. I know that, but everybody has those as well. It's You, you, you still had your chances in this game later on, you know? We did. We did. I thought we actually played quite well today. Honestly, there's not a lot to complain about the performance. Jay mentioned about the Lindelof-Bailey duo. I was quite surprised when Bailey was taken off um, because he was he was having a lot of joy um, against Lindelof. But at the end of the day, um, I've got nothing to complain about. I've said this to you before when I've been on. Uh, Unai Emery is doing a remarkable job. We're well ahead of schedule. Mm. You know, when you think we were 18th in Premier League only 16 months ago, to be in this top four fight is remarkable. Um, and yes, we are. We we are. We do have a lot of injuries at the back. It's hurting us a little bit, um, especially with the way we play with the high line, etc. So, but yes, exactly as you say, Mark. We've got to bounce back. We've got to, you know, we've got to find a way again of, uh, of of remembering just how good we've been for the vast majority of his reign. And I'm sure, I'm sure he will turn it around. It'll be fine. I think Moyes said himself, Arsenal stepped up a gear. You know, fair play to Arsenal. This is the same Moyes, right, who played Arsenal mm. a month ago and won 2-0, right? Mm -hmm. Same tactic, same players. This is a Moyes who also played them and can't beat them, right? Yeah. So something didn't happen today. And fair play to Arsenal. They stood up. Declan mm. Rice, I've got no problem with him, right? No. He didn't sit right in front of me. What a great goal. Didn't celebrate actually said sorry, mouth sorry to us in, in the West Lower. We had Pakatar just above us and, and Pakatar was watching just above us in, in the boxes. And afterwards, you may or not have seen this, Mark, but um, Declan Rice came round and actually did a lap and apologised mm. and, you know, was applauded by all the fans. As did, De you know, um, David Moyes came out at the end for the people who stayed. Yeah. And Suchek and Sufal came as well. Look, it was a bad day at the office. Yes. I don't know what else we can say. No, we dust ourselves off. We go, it's our fifth worst defeat ever in the history. Our last defeat, actually, I was just looking it up, 7-1 loss to Blackburn in October the 14th, 2001. So 23 years. But mm. we just have to write it off and go, you know... Yeah. Well, well done, Declan Rice. I, I well done, Arsenal. Yeah, well, well said. And that's uh, 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 thank you for saying that, Sean, as well. And of course, you know, you've got to see what happens next, see what you can, where you can go. As far as um, Richard Arsenal are concerned, that's their best ever Premier League away performance when it comes to number of goals. It was, yeah, and, and a little bit surprising, maybe. I certainly wasn't expecting a, a result like that. I mean, I do think maybe the two defeats earlier in the season to West Ham played a part today because Arsenal looked hungry for revenge, you know. I think the, the game at the Emirates in particular where 
we you know we dominated that game, had 25 shots or whatever it was, and, and lost 2 0. And I think that was still on our minds. You could see that, yes, we were a bit slow getting going today. And once that first goal went in, you could see the whole weight was lifted from us. Yes, West Ham did seem to fall apart before half time, there's no doubt about that. But I just thought that we looked so focused. I, I haven't seen this Arsenal team look that sort of. Um, I don't know, that ruthless as what they did today. And I do think that was part of those last two defeats, particularly the one at the Emirates over Christmas, where we were so sort of certain we should have won that game with the way that we played. And today it was like, we're putting that right today. That almost must have been Mikel's um, team talk, I think, before the game, you know. We should have won last time. We're going to win this one. And you could see that once we got ourselves in front, that was in, that was an impressive performance from Arsenal. And mm. last season, it was the games against Liverpool and West Ham where... We'd gone 2-0 up in both those games, didn't win, and that kind of sent us on the way to blowing the title. Whereas this year now, we've just beaten Liverpool at home. We've then followed up with a win away at West Ham, 6-0. And are those the lessons from last year? Have they been learnt? And are we now showing that this is going to be a different Arsenal this season? We were slow starting this season. Our performances wasn't great the first half of the season, really. But since the yeah. break, we've come back. And, you know, you mentioned the set pieces, and Declan Rice has only just really started taking corners and free kicks. Mm. He was in the box for most of them in the first half of the season. They went away to Dubai, worked on the set pieces a little bit more. Declan's been taking them and he's set up three or four goals from set pieces since um, since yeah. we got back in. So I mean, it's working, isn't it? I mean, he was brilliant today, wasn't he, Declan? And what a great gesture. If he, if he did say sorry to the West Ham fans after scoring, I mean, it's a little bit strange. He's just scored a great goal for Arsenal yeah. um, and he apologises to West Ham. That just shows what a, what a guy he is, doesn't it? That shows yeah. his personality. And, and that's great, isn't it? You know, And he, he played really well again today, so fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I've always found the sort of apologising for who you play for um, even when you've played against them. I, I understand that some fans like all that sort of stuff and everything. Um, it, for me, I think, you know, it, you've just got to be happy for when you've had Declan and, and he's moved on and doing what he's doing now at Arsenal. And, uh, yeah, good on the, on, on the uh, young man. But um, I don't think we need to worry um, too much sleep. I hate it when people don't... Uh, uh, actually enjoy scoring a goal, whoever they play for, because they play for somebody else. But that's only a personal opinion. One thing I would like to say, though, uh, to you, Richard, is that there are, there's no doubt, as far as I'm concerned here, that they've managed, obviously, uh, Mikel Arteta, we know the attention to detail, but they've obviously been doing an awful lot of hard work on the training ground. You know, they, as, a, as a group, they, they now look so much more comfortable than they have done. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... It... It's been difficult in a way because Mikel is very fixed on the, the the style of football he wants to play. And when it works, it's fantastic. As we've seen today, we've seen on many other occasions. And it's those times when it doesn't work. That's when we've needed to, uh, that's what we've needed to work on. But obviously, since we've come back from Dubai, yeah, you're right. I think in Dubai, they spent a lot of time working on a lot of different things. Set pieces was one. Just think the, the general kind of relationships in the team mm -hmm. as well. And, and the way that we, we're building our play up now, it seems to be a little bit more direct at times, maybe a little bit more direct than it was before. You know, we're getting, I mean, the, the goal that when, when Saka got the penalty for that second goal mm -hmm. today, you know, a, a, a ball through the middle. Yeah, West Ham didn't sit deep. They gave us space. And when you give Arsenal space, we're going to punish teams. And that's why most teams sit back and don't play against us. And West Ham were a bit open, but... We just show we've got different ways to score goals as well now. You know, yes, we've got the set pieces, but we can also play some good football. And actually, today, what I liked was that we were so direct through the centre as well, rather mm. than always going down the sides and pulling it back. We actually went through the middle quite a lot today, yeah. and I like that. And it and it worked because we got a, a few goals that way. Yeah. And, you know, and shooting from distance, you know, we need to do that more. Declan, again, today, brilliant. So, yeah, yeah today was, and last week as well, we're building now something, and hopefully we're right back in there, aren't we? We looked out of it a few weeks ago, at Christmas when we were losing games, but now... We're back in it. Man City are going to be tough, of course. Look at the run they're on. But we can just keep plugging away, keep yep. playing like we did today last week. And who knows and, where we, we could end up. And um, uh, one other thing for you, Sean, on that front, of course, um, West Ham United have always had fans who uh, their passion is so well known. And it's not always a great passion. It's also moments like this where they they feel so annoyed about the club and where the club is going. This is a, a, a quite a vital time, isn't it, for David Moyes and the players now to show that they really are all as one because there's going to be, it might only be a minority, but there will be distractions now from negativity from some fans at West Ham. You know, that, that's nothing new, Sagas. No, I know that. Know. But I think it's, you know, after we, a result like that, you know... I, we are, I, you're right, that, you know, we are... 
you know, we're a fan base that's often divided, you know, whether mm. it's Sam Allardyce or, you know, and and now David Moyes. There's a p lots of people that call it Moyes ball and don't like it. You know, whichever way you look at it, he is our most successful manager in the league. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, he's won us a European title. We've got into Europe three times. No other manager has done that. And if you look at the statistics, the goals per, you know, people talk about entertainment, the goals per game, points per game, the total wins. He, he ticks all the boxes, right? Yeah. But, and here's the big but, people don't like the style of football he plays. They call it Moyes ball. And yeah. some people, and I'm not one of them, will say, well, I'd, I'd rather play well and lose or not score the goals <laughs> than watch this dross. And and those people can be very, very noisy. And the ball do listen. Uh, and, and it's difficult because yeah, you have to be in one camp or the other Moyes in or Moyes out and I think you know this is a critical time my understanding is the board like Moyes and what he's done yeah they respect him Moyes likes the board I hope neither will be swayed by the fans but there is a chance of that it's down to the board at the end of the day if they want to change the manager he's out of contract in the summer and that the talks are ongoing at the moment and and we shall see which way that goes you know does it do they listen to the noisy people who who say Moyes out Moyes ball dinosaur all these things or or the, the people who would say he's their most successful manager in the league ever let's have a chat with the referees of course and uh, as always uh, Keith is with us good evening to you Keith and good evening as well to uh, Mark Halsey uh, Keith, just before I come to you, um, oh, you, you look as if you you, th you fancy yourself. You haven't been refereeing today. What, what you've been doing? That looks like a a coach's top. It is. I'm I'm a manager of a veterans team out in uh, out in Spain on the Oliveira Costa. We're Oliveira Costa Veteranos. You can follow us on Facebook. And we had a great win today, one 0 So I'm very happy. But when you say <laughs> when you say a great win, was that against another of the uh, another good side? Yeah, another good side. Yeah, good referee as well today. So yeah, very good. Yeah, we're very happy today. I'm happy. And QPR got a draw, two-two with Norwich. So I'm well happy. So you're, you're really happy then, aren't you? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm happy. I, I tell you what, Keith. I'm going to come back to you now. I read newspapers yes. all the time, whether it's newspapers that are printed in the same building as this and portals or elsewhere and other things. I just noticed as soon as uh, there was the thought that sin bins and blue cards will be um, trialled elsewhere, that those that uh, like to pontificate on our great game think that this is just something we cannot see at all. We can't have blue sin bins in the uh, Premier League. And if we do, we have to have them only for certain things. You know, as per normal here, I often wonder whether some of these journalists are just sort of uh, saying it so that they don't get uh, barred from speaking to managers and things rather than saying we need something, whatever it is, to stop the amount of squealing and cheating and faking that is going on in our game. Yes, what we need, Mark, is stronger refereeing. Yeah. Uh, and we need the laws that are currently there to be applied more accurately. Sinbin works at grassroots level yeah. uh, because referees apply it with a lot of common sense. Um, there's no pressure other than if somebody has a real go, uh, then the, the Sinbin comes into effect. When we get to the uh, senior game, what has happened is that referees' actions, the game as a whole, have devalued the yellow card. Mark will tell you, when we were in Europe, three yellow cards got the player a suspension. Yeah. What we've done is we've watered that down in England to five or six yellow cards before there's a suspension. And we've got referees. You know, we take Anthony Taylor, who's supposed to be our top referee. He's, uh, on average, generally issued three yellow cards. But a directive was put down at the beginning of this season to say we're going to be tougher. As a result, he's now on six yellow cards, average, mm. per game. And the yellow card is having zero effect. Mm. It's not mm. a punishment anymore. Yeah. It's not a deterrent anymore. Mm. So I think that when we, when we look at the blue card, I think the way that 
these announcements are made doesn't help the process at all. Well, I, think sim- that, I, think it, I think it's right that FIFA and the IFAB take a line that says we've got to do something about dissent. Now, if they're going to do that, then experiment somewhere before they make the public announcements that give us all the impression that this is what's going to happen, and then we get the furore that says, yeah. why are we using cynical cards as well? Yeah, but why are you we see actually the, the- saying cynical? But the thing is, Keith, and the problem is, Mark, is that uh, that's the deliberate way that those who run FIFA and UEFA, who would much prefer to be sitting next to those in the Middle East and enjoying the hospitality in America and everything else and, and whatever, then they don't really want any of this. That's why they do it like this. They're not interested because no. they want to just keep favour with players now who are cheating the whole time. And it's going down the league now. You know, there are goalkeepers now every single time. And all of them just going yeah. down when they're not injured, staying down yeah. for three or four minutes, not going off the field. Let's have a sin bin and an injury bin. Yeah, listen, look, I, I, I have to agree with Keith. I think also for me, this 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 blue card is, is absolute nonsense well, because that's why? what... Because... Because it's no different from from the from a yellow card. There's no difference. So if you get a, a blue card, you go off for ten minutes. You yeah. come back on. You get another blue card. You're sent off. Yeah. So what's what's, what's the difference? Well, the difference so, is but, the but difference the is ten minutes yeah. off the pitch. Ten minutes yeah. off the pitch with only but, ten but then, players. But then what you'll get then is the game slow right down, delaying tactics, all this that you'll get, and you won't. You'll get about in those ten minutes. You most probably get about four minutes of ball be in playing time. Well. Because so, at the same uh, time, listen, listen, I would listen, have listen, a clock. And also, and Keith is absolutely spot on, it's down to the standard of refereeing, of yeah. managing the game and managing the players. That's what it is. Well, And we've got to improve on, our, on, on the way we manage players, the way we but, engage with the players. That's I, the problem. Yeah, and I understand this, and it's not down to you, but I mean, I, I've been knocking down the door again for you, you guys to get into the PGMOL, because what I want to see from referees in the first place, just two little things that um, annoy me. One is, as I've said, faking injury. Injuries, when they're real, are desperate. We all know that. But we all know that they're faking injuries. They know. There's a goalkeeper at the Abbey Stadium a couple of weeks ago who did it for about the last 15 minutes out of the last 25. And at the end of the game, he ran across to his fans and then to the the opposition, all of us as well, just sort of said, hey, you know, I got away with it again. But yeah. then our keeper go went and did the same last week yeah. away from home. They're all at it, and it's just yeah. an absolute nonsense. So I, I do don't agree, agree with Mark. What? I do Let me tell you, sex. Mark. Go on. Keith. I, I think I think Mark. The answer to that is to is is to what rugby league do, and that is when a player's injured in rugby, yeah. the trainer comes on and yeah. treats okay. them. The game continues. So I think that we need to actually look and say, how can we avoid this you, time waiting? I'm going to come back in for you straight away. And yeah. then I'll come back on that. But you see, the problem with football will be the keeper now will go down on the line. You won't be able to yeah. carry it on. You won't be able to trample all over the keeper. It's not the, you know, they won't, they're you clever. Can't. What they're also yeah. all doing, by the way, now is that they all handle the ball when they kick the ball from hand. They're all outside the penalty box. Oh, correct. Oh. But they you know, they're all continue to continue to do all of this and they get unless they get punishment. And the only way to punish these players is by giving them a card and then suspending yeah. them. If you don't do any you're of on, that, they'll carry on. You're on one today, Sags, aren't you, hey? Yeah, I just am. It's annoyed me. <laughs> it's annoyed me. It's annoyed me reading, you know. Martin in the Sunday Times yeah. and what's happening here? We don't need any of this. It'll ruin our football. It's ruining it for the fans right yeah. now. Just like, just like VAR is. Just like VAR yeah. is at the moment. Yeah, you exactly. Know, we saw two ridiculous handballs at Luton Town yesterday. Oh, and yeah. I've gone on about it and gone on about it, about you know, what's natural, what's unnatural, what's, what's natural for that certain phase of play. And those two penalties given at Luton yesterday, were, it was an absolute farce. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. I so agree. look, just I mean, calming down a bit as I am. We've spoken a lot about the bins and and everything yes. like that. Uh, and 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 I 
completely understand how it does work lower down and younger down as well. Of course it does. That is important. But I I still don't understand that if everybody doesn't want blue, we don't want the sin bin or whatever they're all talking about, is what do we want then? Because we still need something. And until the PGMOL come out and say, we need help in stopping cheating at the highest level, no one's going to get anywhere. Well, Mark, they said Howard Webb went out pre-season to all the managers and said he was going to toughen up his referees on dissent. Yeah. It lasted six weeks. Yeah. The sin bin at grassroots level, I'll tell you what it does. It is effective because it's not only an individual punishment, it's a team punishment. Mm. And the team starts saying to the player, when he comes back on, keep your mouth shut. So it does have, at grassroots, a positive effect. Mm. What we've got at the Premier League level is... I go back to the point. We've got referees. I I watch them. They're not incapable of managing a game, but they're all too soft. Mm. They're all trying to manage, but they're not managing at all because management is sugar and salt. It's a bit of like both. Let's be firmer with with these players because, I mean, I watch today the cheating that's going on. It's escalating. Mm. And referees are just like, I don't know. I mean, they're making life so, so difficult. One refreshing point here, Mark, and I don't want to be too premature. I've mentioned this guy before. I watched Sam Barrett yesterday in a game in the Premier League. And for the first time this season, there was a foul inside the penalty area. It didn't need VAR because he sold the decision. Mm. And, And that's what you want with referees. And I, I just think that referees are allowing far too much dissent, crowding around, and they look weak and ineffective. And I think that the standard of refereeing is a worry because managers can't accept what's going on. The IFAB, I've got a job for them. Yeah. Sort out handball yeah. and sort out VAR. I, I think that... The game of football in particular, at the professional level now, in so many different ways, whether it's ex-footballers who come into punditry, some of them are brilliant, like Gary Neville and others, some of them are useless. Um, You've got uh, referees now who want to be liked by those within football. So they're not actually making the decisions because they don't want these clubs to think that they're nasty individuals, but they don't do their jobs properly. It's the same with commentators and other things. We've got so many people now just wanting to be part of the glory of this incredible game without upsetting anybody who is actually laughing behind all of these people's backs because they continue to cheat on and off the field, whether it's financial or whether it's through fouling or not fouling or faking or whatever they're doing. It's got to stop. Yep. Yeah, they're ruining our game, Mark. I went up to one player. I went up to a player in a game and I said, you go down easy today and you'll get absolutely nothing out of me. I'm yeah. telling you. Yeah. And do you know what? He went down once. Yeah. And I said, what did I tell you five minutes ago? And do you he know, didn't do it again. And do you know what, Keith? One of the great things that has happened in football is that the medical side of things is so much better. Referees do not have to worry about a really serious injury anymore. Correct. We all know when it's a serious injury. Yeah. Yeah. And even if it's the odd one that isn't, it will be dealt with properly and swiftly in the right way because referees have always done it that way. Yes. And, and you're right. But I, I think effectively, we've just got to have a bit of courage at times to say, when he goes right. down, ignore him and just yeah. get on with the game. Things hanging over both Everton and Forest. Let's start there. Gavin, with with you and with Everton uh, and where you are, I mean, everything is just so much on hold. And it, uh, I don't know how, how, it, how it plays out. A lot of the people that have been involved in this are no longer there, are they, yeah. anymore? I mean, it's, it's just, it, all it punishes, really, are the people who, whether they've done it through the turnstiles or because they've got Sky Television or they've paid money on other ways towards this club. Without a fan, the club is absolutely nothing. 
because you could play all you like without fans. But if you yeah. don't have an income that's through the fans in the first place, as we've said, by all the different ways they can buy into it, there's no game. No, absolutely. I mean, I know what you're saying about, you know, you can't punish the fans, but if the Everton board or probably narrow it down to Machiri hadn't been so gung-ho with their spend and the lack of controls around it over several years, then, you know, in reality, they are the ones who've got us into this position, haven't they, of the club? You can, you can say the Premier League's punishing the fans or the a commission's punishing the fans. Mm. But in reality, if Everton, if the Everton board or the Everton owner in particular had behaved in a responsible way, we wouldn't be in this position now, would we? And I'm not, that's the way I, I look at things, really. Yeah. You know, I, I, the, 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 the clubs make the rules, Mark, don't they? You yeah. know, the, the rules are signed off in 2013. Of the 14 clubs, I think, voted for it. Everton were one of them. So, you know, it's not something that we didn't disagree with. And, and and I think some of it lost in this, and I'm not defending the Premier League or the Commission here. What I'm saying is, as a, as a fan, I I want I wanted my board and my owner to act responsible. You know, that they, they are the they are looking after the club, aren't they, on our behalf? And they, they obviously didn't. Um, as far as you're concerned, Des, and, and what you from those around you, the fans and everything, um, you know, this contemplation that we might, you might get to within a month of the end of the season or even closer than that, if it's late April that you, you get to know that the whole season, it's been a waste of everything. All of it, your time, your money, your opportunities, what you've done, what you've had to do, what you've bought, what you've, what you've sacrificed otherwise for something that's been taken away from you by big boys deciding that they don't want you to become any bigger. At the start of August, you should all start from the same playing field. You should be able to spend the same money. You should be able to mm. do the same things because it's a competition. You can't start a competition with rules sort of all over the place and Man City can do this and Everton and Forest can do this. It, it just it just shouldn't work like that. And then, again, it's the fans that suffer again, isn't it? it always, everything, whether it's VAR or all these rules they put in, Ultimately, See, it's the fans of the clubs that yeah. suffer. Dan, thank you for joining us. And where are you exactly as a, a fan base and thinking at the moment? Because there have been protests this weekend uh, again with your early game this weekend and what have you. But it, it must get just so frustrating and tiring that you're turning up to watch a football club and your team. But, you know, that it, it's never ending uh, what you're having to do. It, it really is, and 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 there's like like I mentioned, I think it was last week when I when I was on this show. There's uh, there's the group, the uh, the club eighteen sixty seven group, and they've uh, that over the last few months they've really started to gather pace because I think a lot of the Sheffield Wednesday fans are starting to realise that for a number of years, for for a quarter of a century now, uh, you know they've been coming in, they've been paying their money, they've been turning up. We've still got some of the highest highest attendances in the league, uh, but we don't seem to be getting rewarded with anything, but. You know, at one point we did have um, our day out at, at Wembley that we unfortunately lost to Hall in 2016. Then we got to the playoffs again the following year. But I'm just looking now at, at Kieran's uh, fantastic P and L that he's uh, that, he, that he whipped up on a whim. Apparently, <laughs> that, that that's really impressive. And uh, and looking at some of the wages on that on that sheet, they're they're astronomical. Yeah. And uh, and and I feel like what we are we're in a world where just like you say, Mark, we've got these we've got this universe of other clubs that don't have parachute payments trying to keep up and to try and come up with these new innovative ways to make money but also coupled with the fact that our uh, that our chairman's not the uh, not the best chairman in the football league to put it lightly why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Nick Easter and uh, George Shooter both uh, with us this evening. Uh, gentlemen, very good evening for, to both of you. Evening, Mark. 
Hey, Minty. Okay. Right, let's uh, let's evening, start. Let, 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 you, <laughs> let's well look, George. I'll come to you first, and then Nick afterwards. First of all, um, it wasn't pretty, but somehow England are top of the table after two matches. Yeah, um, yeah, definitely not pretty. Um, yeah, I, I think there's there's uh, there's a lot of merit in the way England are trying to play. They've certainly been a bit more adventurous than they have been. Well, for a very long time, really, but certainly under Steve Borthwick and certainly since the World Cup. Uh, so that's to be applauded. Uh, they picked a team that on paper looks a bit more adventurous and a bit more attacking. Uh, and to be fair, people like Fraser Dingwall, Tommy Freeman are playing very well. Freddie Stewart had a, a very good game on the front foot um, yesterday. Um, and defence is, is very good. Uh, they, I mean, I know they leaked a little bit yesterday, yesterday but uh, they put Wales under a lot of pressure uh, when they didn't have, when England didn't have the ball, which is again a good sign, a good bit of progress. But yeah, it, it was a pretty dour game, and um, I, I, th I think yeah, well, I've been, been saying it for quite a while now. I think England need to start playing better at some point if they're going to trouble the better teams in in well, first in the World Cup and now in 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 this Six Nations tournament. And uh, the three best teams are, are probably still to come, or definitely still to come. So yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a win, and I think that's that's uh, needs to be needs to be said as well. That's important to get a win particularly again after recent uh, sort of 18 months of, of, of failure and, and losses. Uh, two, two unconvincing wins out of two. Uh, they'd probably take that right now. They just need to, need to certainly improve on uh, some, some key areas of the game, I think. Yeah, I think, uh, well, of course you're right uh, with what you say, George. Nick as well, just with a thought, I'll come back to you on England, but I first want to ask you a little bit. It's a young Welsh side, isn't it? They'll be a little frustrated with uh, what they've done as well, but... A performance that will they'll learn so much from that. They will learn a lot. Um, very, very young in a in a similar rebuilding phase to England. Not got the seniority that England have. You know the splash in the front row of the likes of Marla Cole and Itoji and George and what have you. But um, they'll learn a lot, and um, that was my concern yesterday. I was that the game is you know. No expectation on the Welsh. They weren't expected to win. Um, and if England weren't to win, it would probably be the sort of mental side of the expectation to win at home that might have cost them. But I'm glad we got through. You know, you don't like to lose to the Welsh because suddenly all your friends who are Welsh or, you know, acquaintances, shall we say, um, that they come out of the woodwork and they like to let you know about it. But, you know, as George says, you know, it's progress. It's two from two. You know, still on, we're still on for the Grand Slam. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, when was the last time this England side had a significant victory against the team ranked higher than them? Um, so that's the question leading into the rest of the Six Nations. From Wales' point of view, going back to your original question, Saggers, um, they will learn a lot from it, but you've mm -hmm. got to win. You've got to win in Test Match Rugby, and Warren Gatlin's a winner, and he'll be... He'll be disappointed they let let England off the hook, and they they next have um, they now next go to Ireland in Dublin, mm. and uh, as we know, Ireland are the number side in the world, and you know, they've got two weeks to prepare for that with a young side. I can't see him getting much out of that, so the pressure will be on, despite the fact they're a young side in a transitional period. So, what does uh, Steve Borthwick take away from all of that? Um, we've we've heard him already, you know, talk, you know important that they won we did win proud of that managed to get a across uh, the line just uh, against the side but what 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 does he still have to shape and do nick i'll come to you first and then george to you afterwards well i think they need to get a lot, a lot more alacrity a lot more cohesion with their attacking game um i like what they're doing defensively i mean that was sort of all over the place the last two or three years you know the tail end of eddie and and last year and it wasn't really the English, you know, it's been a, a hallmark of the England game, that along with set piece. But we've known that for a long time. And what's always frustrated England fans is, you know, our ability with the ball. And, you know, having a balance of the game. Um, we obviously had too much balance of a kicking game in the World Cup. Steve's, you know, it's very much in Steve's sort of MO to do that, you know, given where he's coached before. But he understands the modern game with, you know, so France and Ireland and the All Blacks, you know, what, you know, you've got to put points on the board. And he selected a form side. He selected good players. George spoke about, you know, a couple of Northampton lads playing well, you know, Tommy Freeman, Fraser Dingwall. But where England really lack, and they'll hope that a few guys come back from injury, is some go forward, some power. Um, because it's okay having ball players and guys that want to attack and are willing to attack. 
But if you don't have the ability in in tight international defences to get over the gain line and get quick balls, so someone like Ollie Lawrence, I'm not sure of his injury status, but he was in the squad and was pulled for the first two games. Someone like him, you know, they need these big ball carriers mm-hmm. to be able to create that space for our attacking game to thrive. Uh, and George, of course, at, at the stage, as Nick was saying there, that uh, Steve Borthwick is with this squad. Um, a win's a win, which is important, even if there is still an awful lot to do. How does he, how does he blend that in, in the rest of this uh, championship now against uh, the better sides? Well, you know, the, the winning part is very important for the squad. I think, you know, if, if you're losing and playing poorly, it can be a very debilitating place to be. Uh, you know, the press on your back, people like us are chirping on Sunday night TV about how rubbish everything is. Uh, so if you're losing these games uh, and, and playing badly, that can be quite bad, quite bad for morale, quite bad for confidence. So I think Borthwick will use the wins. It will use those, the wins, uh, I'm talking wins in, in terms of the fixture, but also the wins on uh, on defence, uh, the wins on attack when they're driving lineouts going well, the scrums, uh, milking penalties. Those, you, you've got to cling on to those little positives. And it's, it's, a, it's a very slow... Well, it can be quite a slow progress, particularly in attack. I mean, strange enough, defence, I think, is slightly easier to get right. And uh, Felix Jones looks like he's hit the ground running, really, and the team have bought into that. But really, defence is, 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 I think, is the, is the more simple part of the game. The attack, where you've got so many moving parts, you've got so many things relying on uh, you know, four or five pairs of hands, uh, the weather, uh, the, the opposition, all this sort of stuff. Sometimes you, the, the attack can take a lot longer to get into or click into some sort of shape. But as I said earlier on, I think it's positive the way England are looking to play. They haven't picked uh, Fraser Dingwall and t- told him to play like Ollie Lawrence or Manu Tulangi. They told him to say, told him to play like you do at your club. Um, I agree with Nick that, that if you look at that first choice, well, you look at the, the, the starting back line that, that, that was on the weekend, you, you've got fairly lightweight players and no disrespect to them they're great athletes and they've got very very good skills but they haven't got a big ball carrying center mm. or even a big ball carrying wing like a joe cockler singer uh, and that can be crucial that will be crucial against better teams better defensive teams better better teams where you have to score points so whether they whether they need to bring someone into the pack to do a bit more of that um get, you know, loads of time for ben earl but not necessarily a massive ball carrying number eight um, you know, Roots has done well. I, I think they just need that. I think that, that's another dimension they do need. It's somewhere on the field. They need to get someone who can get them over the gain line. And it's only two or three yards. And then suddenly you've got Ford and you've got Dingwall. You've got Henry Slade on the front foot. You've got uh, Freddie Stewart chiming in on the front foot. Uh, and you've got the wingers. You've got two or three, two of the three or four wingers they've got. If you can get that sort of two or three yards on the front foot, that makes a massive difference to the game. But... Mm. Yeah, I think from from Borthwick's point of view, he's just got to play on the positives. You've got to say, look, we're winning. Uh, the, the the ceiling is very high at the moment. We don't we're nowhere near. We're we're probably playing at about fifty percent of our abilities if you look at the individuals, uh, and that's what you've got to do. And then hopefully that sort of enthusiasm, that confidence gets uh, contagious throughout the squad, and suddenly you start playing well. And the other thing with that, Nick, as well. I mean, at, at times they they went back to what they they know that with you know, the, the route a lot higher, and and it worked in the end with. Uh, the mistake made by Wales, but um, how how do you balance? I mean, take taking you know when you've got uh, new players, younger players, and some experience, and and always a crowd that wants more. Uh, do you, do you think that uh, Twickenham is from the stands understanding that this season is just the beginning of the new cycle? It's uh, well, you get a. I was going to say a lot of different demographics at Twickenham, but probably one overall. But it's been it's been a frustrated um, fan base for for two years. You know, there was a bit of hope held out last season when Steve Forthwick came in for the Six Nations, but then, you know, we got panned by fifty. Um, I think the first time we ever conceded fifty at home um, by France. So that sort of subdued it a little bit. And yesterday I was at a game. I don't know if shoots at the game. You did get the feeling that. You know, with the selection, with the attempt, um, with ball in hand against Italy last week, mm. that they were going to get behind. But it just was one of those games. And I don't think it's helped. And I'm sort of sidetracking here by somebody officiating, to be honest with you, with the endless time it takes for a TMO decision. Um, you know, the scrum resets and things like that. You know, that's, that's probably a, a bigger issue in rugby union at the moment. We're not talking about that. But, you know, England do... 
when England get on the front foot and look, you can play to your strengths with the ball in the air and Freddie Stewart was magnificent yesterday and why wouldn't you if you've selected him play to his strengths? Damn what everyone else thinks. Mm-hmm. But once, say, if he, if he takes a ball and gets you on the front foot and you've got the defence retreating, it's our ability then to keep them retreating or to create those openings within the next three or four phases. And I think that's what we've really got to work on the next two weeks if we're ready to progress. Um, Nick, just one more before I come back to you, George, then on, on this, because we're finding in a lot of our sports now where we're using the technical ability to, to make decision-making. We'll come on and talk about Scotland and France uh, uh, with that in mind. But with, with, with everybody, it, it's, a, it's a fine balance here between everything, isn't it? Because of the, um, the talk about uh, everything to do with concussion that we've had in here and, and all the other bits and pieces and making sure that the combination of the uh, referee and the assistants and the, the, the technical aspect to get the right result. It does mean that we lose that flow, though, doesn't it, Nick? Yes, 100%. And something needs to be done about it. Uh, you said, we'll, we'll talk about the Scotland incident, so I won't cover that. But yeah. look, player safety over entertainment always. OK, that, that has to be the priority. Yeah. Um, but there has to be an understanding of what you're watching and why you're watching it. And the gladiatorial arena that is rugby and, you know, myself and George have been through it and you know the sacrifices these guys are making. They are unique athletes, unique people. It's not a game for everyone. So, you know, when you're talking about the community game and head clashes and blowing the tackle height, that, that's a different story. But to get people interested in the game, whether they do want to play it or they want to come and watch it or or whatever and support it um you have to have more flow to this game and i think it's getting a bit silly now the referee a lot's been taken out of the referee's hands a little bit like cricket with the drs and mm. you think you've got an lbw decision but and same with var var and that immediate emotional and passionate high that you get can can be completely reduced and you know that's what sport's about isn't it and look we're, we're talking on here be talking during the week as much as you've added technologies to the game, you do want to get the big calls right. Of course you do. Yeah. Um, as much as you want to add technology to the game, you're taking away what the what the game, the essence of the game really is. And people will talk about controversies in sport for years to come, like they've done in years gone gone by. And that's what drives the conversation before or after a game. And I think as well, though, George, don't you, with that in mind, you know. We, there is still an acceptance. It might be not straight after a game or anything like that from both players and fans that, you know, if it is more about the two 15s up against each other with a referee that feels that even if he's made a slight mistake or whatever, he's not going to be completely punished for that because th- that sort of thing does happen. And yet still keeping um, a, a good eye on uh, some of the big hits and whether everything is right... We can't go completely the other way, though, where you're dissecting, as Nick was saying, every single moment that could possibly cause a problem for somebody in 25 years. Yeah, I mean, it's such a such a sticky, excuse yeah. me, sports analogy, it's a sticky wicket. Yeah, there's so you want to get things right. You've got technology uh, and the technology has been brought in to make the game safe and, and to make sure that the big decisions uh, are, are correct. Um I think exactly what Nick says. You've got, you've got to, you've got to keep the game interesting. I think if you watch America, I love American football. I watch a lot of American football. They use technology there, but the game itself is very stop-start. They have six, eight, ten seconds of action, then you know the forty seconds downtime. So they can do that. They can afford to send the, the the footage to New York and come back and listen to it on the radio and talk to the talk to the head office and see what they make a decision. I'd like to see something a bit more like the NRL and, and the Super League. I think rugby league, for whatever reason, seems to have man- managed to develop the technology uh, far better than we have. I don't know what's what's holding us back. I, I know rugby union is slightly more technical game. There's a bit more going on with the rucks and scrums. But you watch rugby league and the game flows and the referee's mm. talking to his mate in the bunker. He doesn't stop and go and watch the screen unless there's something specific to look at. Anything, they, they have a report. So that goes on report after a game and it's dealt with in the week if it's sort of foul play or, or something like that. They have they have head injury assessments as well. So there's no reason we're not giving that up. We can, all the players have gum shields now. So if you need to pull someone off, you can pull someone off uh, as the game's going. I think, I think we just need to be a little bit less rigid. I think we're far too 
automatic. You know, the referees have a, a very set sort of script they stick to when they talk to the VR. If you listen to the Aussie Rugby League, it's like they're down the pub. Hey, mate, what did you see there? Yep, yep, saw that. Yep, yep. Okay, I put that on report. The old cross arms or yep. they allow a try or disallow a try, whatever it is. So I think we, we've got this technology now and it's still relatively in its infancy, I suppose. I just think we need to be, need to be a bit more relaxed about it and having the back of our minds. Let's keep the game flowing whilst trying to yep. get the things. Yeah, look, you make a great point there, George. And, and I think, Nick, as well, for me, one of the other things is trust the officials and, and let those officials understand that they are going to get their backing. I mean, it is difficult at times. I mean, you know, we, we could, we'll talk about the French against the Scottish and a, and a try that nobody could decide whether the ball was grounded or not that would have changed the, the result. Um, but, you know, let the officials do their job. Everybody who plays rugby now at whatever age understands uh, the problems that there are with it there's progressive rugby there's everything to help everybody coming into the new game and what have you uh, it, it's all there now so we at times we have to let this game flow for the excitement of both playing it and watching it yeah absolutely and uh, people want to get home on time as well don't they because <laughs> um, some of these games some of these games with uh, yeah team owner of you and everything they go on about 20 30 minutes longer than they should um and you and you say that let the referee decide and I, I just go back to what i said earlier and what george is saying is you know the more technology you use the less the referee is deciding it and i think you're absolutely right you know there, there's going to be human error that is part of the romance of sport yes it's frustrating mm. but i think if you look through the ages in every single sport and you look through the last 20 years or however long it's been, you know, since you've had Hawkeye in, in tennis and, and, and cricket and you now have VAR in football. Obviously, we've had the sort of TMO since, I think, 2007, mm. deciding tries now a lot more foul play, <clears throat> knock-ons three within three phases. Is the top side still seem to win the competitions? Yeah. And the worst side still seems to be knocked out and relegated. So, yes, we want to get the big calls and there is more on the line. There is more on the line in terms of jobs, um, in terms of what it means to people, in terms of finances, you know, possible sponsorships. We understand that. But it's not, they've not got it so wrong in the past, right? Yeah. And the past, if you went away, certainly on a rugby tour or a cricket tour, you got a, you got a, you got a home a ref, you know, in down in South Africa, then you were getting no favours. You, mm. you know what I mean? But mm. generally, when it came to the test matches, the better side would win. Yeah. And and it's always been the case. So, it, as I say, it's not a case of, oh, my God, you know, about 20, 25% of the time, so-and-so won the league or so-and-so won the cup or whatever it might have been, the European Cup or the World Cup. They didn't deserve to win because the refereeing was so bad. It was never that case. Mm. So, but what you're taking away from the game, I think, is far greater than some of the decisions that are being questioned. Yeah. Yeah, good points that you make. A quick word uh, from both of you about Scotland and France. There was this try that the referee had said no try. Uh, it was inconclusive. Scotland decided, of course, that they thought it was a try, uh, which would have gone on to uh, sort things out for them. Uh, France, of course, got away with it. But, George, these things do happen now and again. Yeah, I, I'm... I'm not too sure the, what, what, what the regulations are now, but it was always the case that the benefit of doubt went to the defending team in yeah. rugby union. I know rugby league was the other way around. If there was any doubt, then the attacking team got the uh, try, for example, try given. So for this, from this situation, it was fairly clear to me. It was non-conclusive. The referee uh, had already said no try, and then there was no conclusive evidence to suggest otherwise. I know it looks like it scored a try, and if you're yeah, you know, if you if you're carrying the ball there, you probably know if you did or not. But the fact the fact is, for me, it was inconclusive, so that's no try. Uh, and actually, Finn Russell uh, said so in his after the after match. I thought he was quite quite uh, quite good actually. The way he just sort of said, you know, we've got to play better. There are plenty of other opportunities to win the game. It was a pretty turgid game, even uh, even by yesterday's standards. It was probably the worst of the the games yesterday. But um, yeah, the Scots had enough chance to win the game and um, and didn't. Uh, and yeah, as as Nick says, generally. You know, very, very rarely do uh, the best teams lose games on on those sort of 50-50 decisions. It's you know, the, the the better teams are the better teams for a reason. They're able to get over that. So yeah, for me, I, I don't, I don't. Yeah, you know, I see there's a bit of controversy. Of course, there's always going to be. But mm. for me, it's for me, there was no try. It's just that that's, that's the that's the way the game is played as as far as I'm concerned. 
Well, I think the integrity of our domestic system um, is being questioned here because if performers like Liam Dawson have such an outstanding season and they're not involved in the initial group, that's a surprise. Um, but when you're picking people who have got virtually no track record, purely on the basis that it's a hunch or you like the hype they deliver the ball from, then one has to question, you know, why is so much money, i.e. almost £40 million being spent on a domestic system to underpin an international team? So I think we're at a really interesting phase of world cricket, uh, not just because of the franchise leagues, but one really has to question you know, what it's there for if it isn't producing players of the right Which, calibre. Yeah. And secondly, please. if they do get selected, um, if they do perform like Liam Dawson and they don't get selected, then something seriously is wrong. The two of you, come I on. Think I think it was interesting. I was chatting with someone the other yeah. day about, about this and they were saying, well, and it wasn't to defend the selections, but it was almost to reason, I'd try and sort of reason with the decision. And it was, well, what conditions in England will a spinner bowl in that are anything like what they're going to experience in India? So therefore, making a selection on someone who's performed well in England, an idea that they may well handle certain situations a little bit better. But uh, I suppose that the selectors and this England setup are sort of back in their own judgments, and, and obviously the way that things have gone, they've they've got more things right than they got wrong in flying in the face of what we thought to think was normal before. So uh, it is it is a sort of throwing out a sort of real question to county cricket, isn't it? About yeah. sort of uh, are you providing the right conditions to, to to prepare people for the test that they're going to get abroad? But equally, I mean, we're going to start the season in a couple of months' time, and. Uh, I don't think there's going to be similar to Raj put this weekend. Yeah, no, I think we just lost you a little bit there, uh, Angus, on a couple of words, but we we, we got the, the gist of all of that, so everything fine. Neil, one thing to, uh, just before I want to come back and uh, talk about Ben Folks in a short while, we mentioned him last week, but just for somebody else who won't, Virat Kohli, who's, who's played no part in this series, uh, because of personal reasons, has, has confirmed that he's going to miss the rest of this series as well. And uh, obviously an important decision that um, their selectors uh, and the Board of Control for Cricket in India decided, you know, this this was the right thing and, and totally respects and supports him. Yes, yeah, it's sad news for Virat and one doesn't know the circumstances behind his reasons to make himself unavailable for selection but one just hopes that he and his family and um, any particular difficulties that they're encountering can be overcome but i think the lovely thing that's happening in world sport now is that team management and administration and, and ownership uh, models are much more understanding and much more accommodating uh, whereas maybe in the past um, people felt that they had to continue playing for fear of being excluded. Mm. So we're living in a in a much better era where the care of the human being is prioritised. And we've seen a similar situation with England with Harry Brook. And one just hopes that whatever challenges Harry Brook is um, having to deal with that are being overcome successfully. Yeah, look, great point. Um, Neil, I'm going to start with you and uh, uh, bring in Angus about this. Um, I, as uh, a man on who's uh, a veteran, as they call it now, Indian writer on cricket and everything, has been uh, writing about Ben Folkes and saying that he is the best keeper he has seen uh, on pitches in India uh, since Alan Knott. Well, that's high praise indeed. And clearly Ben Folkes has kept wicket superbly in these first two test matches. Um, but I think the challenge of keeping wicket on turning pitches, particularly when there's variable bounce, is something that you only realise how difficult it is when someone struggles. And what's been lovely um, for the Wicket Keepers Union is that uh, folks have taken two catches from under edges that have confirmed his quality in that staying low um, and being able to take balls that, that don't bounce is a, is a real skill. 
I think what's also been really challenging for him has been that some of these pitches have really bounced as well. Mm. Um, there was one catch that um, went down as a missed chance that went high off the shoulder of the bat and caught him on the right thumb. Um, but even the very best wicketkeepers are going to, to miss chances. Mm. But I think the praise for Ben folks, we've got to be careful that it's not over the top um, because... Alex Stewart was very quick early in Ben Folks' career when he signed him from Essex to say he was the best wicketkeeper in the world. <laughs> Great promotion by the Surrey cricket manager, but I always felt that Angus Fraser had John Simpson at Middlesex, who yeah. I thought was the best wicketkeeper in England at the time. Um, and we're lucky to have you know these excellent wicketkeepers in English cricket because they they set the standard. And you know the era that I played in and that. Angus played in. We had Jack Russell, who was yeah. you know, a wonderful wicketkeeper for England. And then Angus would have played a, a number of test matches for England with him. And Ang Angus, one other thing, I think that uh, Alex Stewart, obviously, who's been uh, um, involved in the preparations uh, with uh, folks for this series, it has said how he has basically um, concentrated and worked incredibly hard on the standing up to the stumps and uh, how vital that has been and 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 really gained his, his confidence and, and everything else with an awful lot of heart. Of course, he's got the control. Of course, he's got his movement. Of course, he's got his balance. And of course, he's a great keeper. But he's had to work again at that um, because he wasn't even in the side. You know, mentally there, you've got to be right as well. He doesn't want to snatch and get that first chance. And if he drops one, he wants to be able to put that straight out of the mind and not be under the same pressure. And I think it's showed, I mean, he has been superb. No, he is superb. And, and again, I, I, I agree with Neil, sort of John Simpson at Middlesex and now moved to Sussex. Uh, he's been outstanding too. And it's, I suppose, a testament to, to cricket in this country that the fact that we, uh, the wicketkeeping position is still a very important, glamorous and highly rated. It's not something where, uh, obviously, we have been through spells with Duncan Fletcher in charge, where... Garrett Jones was sort of in charge, and people questioning whether he was the best keeper, but he was capable of scoring runs. Uh, we had Matthew Pryor, who was an outstanding keeper. So we've had a history of wonderful keepers in in this country, and, and folks fits into that uh, superbly. And yeah, it doesn't happen by chance. And I mean, I obviously at Middlesex got John Simpson working with Jack Russell, which was one of the good decisions, well, one of the better decisions, probably, I made. Um, but it's and, and Jack Russell used to work with Alan Knott, so you, you're yeah. going back quite a long time in, in the sort of annals of wicketkeepers in this country. But just watching them train, and at times it's like, what on earth is going on in that corner of an indoor school? There, it's <laughs> like a, it's like sort of nothing you've ever seen with bath mats and bits of wood, and it's you just leave them to it. But uh, it obviously works because um, and they and they and they put a great deal of pride in it. They work extremely hard at it. And it's often the keep at cricket grounds. They're the last to leave. Mm. Every other player sort of gets the batting, gets the bowling, and they do their fielding as a group. Um, sort of there, everybody's left and sort of going back to the hotel. And the keepers are still there out in the middle uh, practicing because it is an unbelievably difficult skill. I don't know how they yeah. stand up there with the bat, the ball, and everything flying in front of you. You've got to be incredibly brave as well as skillful. Yeah, and uh, Neil, I mean, both of us, you at the the full uh, county level. I only ever made it to minor county level, but kept to some great uh, players like Derek Parry from the, the West Indies and Stuart Turner at times and others. And uh, it's it, I always thought of uh, keepers as, as like goalkeepers as well. Another strange, we were detached from the rest of them because we knew uh, just how much work, and, and you will have certainly done, and to show what you did, uh, how important it was to do that work, to get that, that little bit extra that you possibly can? Well, success only comes through hard work and it's it's a given. But I think where wicketkeeping is different is you're playing in a team where you can only keep to the bowlers that you've got, but you still need to actually develop your game against different types of bowling. So you have to artificially create those opportunities. So if your team hasn't got a left arm spinner, you've got to set up practices um, to still be able to keep well against left arm spin. Mm. Same with if you're keeping wicket to a team that's got mainly seam bowlers and maybe an off spinner, you've still got to set up practices for a super fast bowler to be able to deal with that extra pace and, and that extra bounce. 
I was very privileged in my career to keep, we get to a lot of leg spin initially through Essex schools cricket with a young Nasser Hussain, who was a brilliant schoolboy leg spinner. And then um, when I joined Somerset, I, I had the privilege of keeping wicket to Mushtaq Ahmed. And then at the end of my career at Leicester this year, I had one magnificently enjoyable season keeping wicket to Anil Kumble because Anil Kumble's cricket was exceptional because he had the attitude of a fast bowler, lots of aggression. He bowled very straight, so there weren't that many balls that you would take. But he got exceptional bounce. So when he when he did beat the bat on the outside, it was quite often hitting the shoulder of the bat or the batsman's thumb. And that was a very specialist um, yeah. experience to go through. And lots of practice had to be done, and I absolutely loved it. That's it for this episode of Back of the Stand. And thank you to all my guests and, most importantly, to you. Hope we've given you something to speak about. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast. So from me, Mark Saggers, we'll take that step up to the back of the stand next time. Goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.